From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. Are you ready to grow your dermatology practice? Practices need more than ever to adopt technological solutions to meet patients' demands for digital access and convenience. It's critical that your practice has the tools and insights required to attract, engage, and retain more patients with far less administrative work. With our partner, PatientPop, practices can enhance every step of the patient journey, including online search, ongoing post-visit connection, online review management, and patient payments. Contact PatientPop today at partners at patientpop.com for a free demo and receive $1,500 off your first month setup fee when you sign up with PatientPop and mention the AAD partnership. Hello and welcome to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Ben Stoff from Emory University, and the topic of today's episode is the Americans with Disabilities Act. To have this dialogue, I am very pleased to be joined by Dr. Tom Hagley, a general dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in a hospital-based practice in the Newark, Ohio area. Tom is a member of the Practice Management Committee with the AAD, and our listeners have expressed great interest in knowing more about practice management. So, Tom, thank you so much for having a dialogue with us today. Thanks for having me, Ben. I look forward to talking about the Americans with Disability Act and how it applies to your dermatology practice. Well, that is just what we want you to do, Tom. Thank you. It, you know, it's it's one of those laws that's almost so ingrained in our society that we take for granted that it's there and may fail to recognize some of the things that it has forced us to implement. Tom, let me just start by asking you, how did you kind of become interested in the ADA or knowledgeable about the ADA to the extent you are? Well, I think just, you know, every dermatologist in practice, they have to deal with these things on a daily basis. And so it's just important to know what the rights of the patients are and what the responsibilities are of the practice so that everybody can get the best care possible. So I'm in a hospital-based practice and, you know, a lot of these type of things are done at a higher level than just the dermatology office. But I do think it's important to understand where the rules and regulations come from. And then that all kind of falls back to this uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. So maybe I'll start by reviewing that a little bit. Yeah, please do, Tom. So just give us a kind of general overview, 10,000 foot view. What is the ADA? Okay, so there's a couple of laws uh, that affect how your practice should treat patients with special needs. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, or uh, the ADA, and Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act are the two primary laws that help us determine how we should treat patients with special needs. The ADA, in brief, is a federal law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. And they define a disability as a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. A person who has a history or record of such an impairment or a person who is perceived by others as having such impairment. That is by definition who a person with disability is, and so that's who this law covers. The second law that I mentioned was Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and that's another federal law that helps prohibit discrimination based on national origin. And the Department of Health and Human Services, they expanded the definition of that to include patients with limited English proficiency. So this is looking at patients that maybe English is not their primary language and might need a little bit of uh, additional help in the office. 
Oh, that's great. So, yeah, it's a great point, too. I mean, thinking about the way in which practices have consolidated and many of us have moved more toward hospital-based practices, it may be the case that we're not sort of directly interacting with these policies that kind of govern what we do and may not know about them. So I think that's a really good point and why it's good to have a refresher. So you mentioned here sort of two laws, major federal laws that we need to be thinking about that kind of provide accommodations for patients, whether that be based on disability. And we can hear a good definition from you, Tom, about that. And you could see some interpretation, some openness to interpretation when it comes to you know what constitutes a disability and what doesn't. And then another federal law relating to the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination based upon nation of origin. And that probably brings to bear some responsibility to provide language interpretation and things like that. Do I have that right? Yes, you have that right. The big parts of that Disability Act are defining what type of access we need to provide for patients with a disability. And then the second part, and also somewhat from the American with Disabilities Act, is you know how do we effectively communicate with patients with disabilities? So from an access standpoint, we could start by discussing the physical access. So yeah. the way the Americans with Disabilities Act defines it is that we have to remove any architectural barriers that would be a hindrance to a patient with a disability. So think about this like the doors. You have to have a wide enough door that a patient that has a wheelchair is able to get into the exam room. If you had a door that was too small, removing the architectural barrier would be to try to, you know, put in a wider door. You also want your exam rooms and your office to be handicap accessible. And so usually that's going to include a ramp out front. So people with wheelchairs or that have difficulty ambulating steps are able to enter the office. You can go from there and think about the bathrooms. They have to be handicap accessible as well. And you also want a place where people that have disabilities may need a, a parking spot closer to the office. And so we, we commonly see those, those handicap parking spots. And, and that's the type of thing that you know falls under this Americans with Disability Act. I will add to that, that in terms of responsibility, It is both the owner of the property and the tenant that has to be responsible for meeting those requirements. That's fascinating, Tom. So yeah, things we, again, probably just take for granted as being in place because they are actually have their origins in many cases in this law and compliance with the law. So things like door width, you mentioned having a ramp to access an entrance if it's elevated, certain aspects of the bathroom that would need to be in place, and parking, again, things we take for granted, but are there for a reason. And then also interesting, something I didn't know that it's partly responsibly borne by the owner of the building, but also the tenant. And I know, you know some of our listeners may have an arrangement with where they are renting or leasing space and don't own the space that they're in. And so it's a kind of shared responsibility. That's fascinating stuff. What about the kind of language interpretation communication piece? When you're communicating with a patient, it doesn't matter if they have a disability or not. The communication has to be equivalent. And so, as you know, from working with patients, there's different ways to give the information. Sometimes we verbally give it. Sometimes we write it down. And sometimes if the, you know, if the patient does not speak our language um, or our, you know, our primary language, then we have to provide an interpretation service. So as long as you're able to effectively communicate the equivalent information to all patients, then you've met that requirement. And you have to think about what it might take to get there. Written materials certainly are helpful. Interpreters for patients that maybe have a hearing disability. The other thing is some patients may have a companion with them that comes to the appointments. And these rules also apply 
to the companion. Hmm. And so if uh, you're providing healthcare information to a patient and the companion, and the companion is somebody that it is important for them to understand the information as well, then you also have to make sure that you are able to effectively communicate with, with the patient's companion. Fascinating stuff, Dom. So just thinking about somebody out there in private practice who is in a small practice setting and may not have an infrastructure like somebody who is practicing in a hospital-based setting, you know, what are some things that you think could be done to help accommodate this communication requirement that we have from the law? That's a good question, Ben. You know, what the law provides us is that here are the things that we need to provide for patients with disabilities. But there is the question that comes up where people will say, I'm a small practice. You know, I don't have I don't have the ability to provide all these things. Right. Well, the, the, the law says that you have to provide things that are readily achievable without much difficulty or expense. Mm-hmm. And that is where the gray is. If you just think about your experience going to places that are accessible to people with disabilities, you frequently will see parking spots, ramps, door widths bathrooms that are handicap accessible. And so those are the type of things that medical practices should be expected to do as well. Right, Tom. Fascinating. So it kind of specifies that the level of compliance, if you will, is adjusted to some degree based on what you're saying to the kind of available resources to a practice. So one might imagine that in an urban setting with a big infrastructure, there'd be you know a certain level of compliance that's expected, whereas maybe in a, in a smaller setting, perhaps less so depending upon the nature of the accommodation. I think that that gray area is where it's really important to have a attorney involved to help yes. you <laughs> as a, a practice owner, make sure that you are meeting the requirements so that you can provide the best possible care for those patients. Yeah, that's great. Tom. Very good advice. I think obviously when in doubt, when it comes to a federal law, consult your favorite um, healthcare attorney <laughs> if available to you. Okay. So I'm just, uh, you know, um, thinking about kind of new applications of some of these laws, particularly the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, we have, we've been into something of a new frontier, at least embraced it closely with the COVID era, which is telehealth, telemedicine practice. You know, many of us practice that during the pandemic or continue to do so, and it's increasingly adopted. Also, we have this sort of like new space on the internet that we're all a part of. What are some ways in which these laws apply in that space if they do? The Americans with Disabilities Act applies to any interaction that you're having with the patient. So that does include your website and also telehealth visits. So let's think about the website first, for example. If somebody that has a disability is interacting with your website, they need to be able to have the equivalent experience as somebody without a disability. They need to be able to get the information Uh, just as readily. So that means making a website that is compatible with speech recognition software and screen readers. And so, you know, those are different devices that patients with a disability might use to interact with the website. There is a standard for websites. um, I'll read this. It's the uh, Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG. This is one standard that you can use to determine if your website is ADA compliant. And at a minimum, the type of things that you you might think about to get to that level would be making sure you have the text equivalent of every image, posting documents in text-based formats, structuring your website to allow users to alter color and font sizes, and then making sure you have captions that go with any video. 
And that way, all patients will be able to interact with that website and be able to obtain the information that they need. That's super interesting, Tom. I don't know that that is something that is generally appreciated, but certainly the way in which many patients will discover a practice or get information about it. And as Tom mentioned, web content accessibility guidelines are out there. And Tom, I assume that's something that is what Googleable. And if somebody wanted to know more about some of the guidance that exists, you know, things that I think we probably would find intuitive, but maybe don't think of all the time, kind of compatibility with software that might help patients with disabilities to be able to read or hear better, captioning for anything in a video context, text equivalent for images, and so on and so forth. All right, that's super helpful stuff. Now, I guess this is sort of an extension of telehealth too, but any sort of particular things relevant to telehealth as, as dermatologists are embracing that more? So the, the telehealth visit has to comply as well. Right. And you want to make sure that you're using a telehealth service that allows for a third-party interpreter. And so that means if you have a patient that does not have the same primary language that you have, that you can have the interpreter come on to help interpret that visit. There also are some telehealth services that maybe can help from a video standpoint to help make sure that that communication is as appropriate as it should be. There's a lot of mobile devices that practices are offering now, such as, um, you know, my charts and accessibility websites where you can go on and see your health information. Those also have to be ADA compliant. Hmm, fascinating. Oh, yeah. You know, I think we do need to just think about these virtual visits as to some degree equivalent, at least in terms of what we're required to do for accommodation for patients. So those are really great tips, you know, when thinking about platforms to use, uh, to have the ability to have a third-party interpreter join in. And then yes, with the wave of platforms for patients to access their own information, which is upon us, also thinking about compliance with that as well. Well, Don, this has been extremely informative. What about some information sources if, say, a listener may have a specific question or want a little bit more when thinking about the ADA and other kinds of accommodations that would be required in the practice setting? If you're interested in more information, you can go to the AAD website and the practice management section does have a ADA compliance area where you can find more resources and information. As far as your website, you're going to want to talk to your web developer, and they would certainly, I'm sure, be aware of the different compliance requirements that you would need to have on your website. Of course, if you have additional questions, you can also seek legal counsel to help you through these issues. There's attorneys that spend significant time helping businesses achieve compliance with this law because it doesn't only affect medical practices, it affects all businesses that the public interact with. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think we should also mention, I mean, other than just the sort of moral imperative to comply with these laws, they also have significant teeth. I mean, there are big penalties associated with violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so it's not just there in vain to shape what we do. Tom, just as we close here, any final thoughts to leave listeners with about the ADA? Well, I think it's important for everybody that's out there practicing dermatology to be aware of what the ADA is and what they need to do to be compliant with it. And that's important because we want to provide the best possible care to our patients. And so the ADA is the framework that we can use to make sure that we are, are doing that. And there's a lot of different ways to provide those accommodations, but we do want to make sure that everybody that comes into our office is getting the best possible care and able to understand and communicate with the practice in an effective way. Great, Tom. Well, thank you for putting on your legal hat for a few minutes and educating our listeners 
about what is a really important sweeping and longstanding law in our country that has new applications is I think the way that our practices have changed, particularly in recent years. So thanks for all of your expertise and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. Thanks for having me. Are you ready to grow your dermatology practice? Practices need more than ever to adopt technological solutions to meet patients' demands for digital access and convenience. It's critical that your practice has the tools and insights required to attract, engage, and retain more patients with far less administrative work. With our partner, PatientPop, practices can enhance every step of the patient journey, including online search, ongoing post-visit connection, online review management, and patient payments. Contact PatientPop today at partners at patientpop.com for a free demo and receive $1,500 off your first month setup fee when you sign up with PatientPop and mention the AAD partnership. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.